one of the reasons a Donald Trump can rise to power and spread the big lie about the election theft is that we've bought into a lot of false truisms that disrupt our mind's own ability to weed out bad ideas. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Our world is awash in baseless conspiracy theories. Foremost among them are that President Trump won the 2020 election, that COVID-19 is a hoax, and that the COVID vaccine implants a microchip created by Bill Gates, and also that Antifa stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. All of these falsehoods are in circulation despite being repeatedly disproved. How can you boost your resistance to conspiracy theories? Author Andy Norman, who's taught at Carnegie Mellon University, says we can inoculate ourselves against bad ideas. His new book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. We began our conversation by discussing recent political conspiracy theories. Andy Norman, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. We're talking at a time when there are now two big lies in circulation, one uh, in the political realm. One is aimed at saying that Donald Trump won the November 2020 election. And a second, a little bit newer, is uh, one that is whitewashing the January 6th insurrection uh, recently in congressional testimony, uh, Republicans were saying it was no different than tourists visiting the Capitol the way they were walking through the rotunda. And right. now we have the Republican Party has purged its number three figure in the House, Liz Cheney, for refusing to parrot the big lie about the election. Yes. Uh, and it goes on. States across the country are passing voter suppression laws. And blaming the fact that uh, on the, this for the fact that people have lost confidence in elections, when it is Republicans themselves who have worked to undermine those elections, mm. so we are at a time when disinformation is happening on a mass scale and uh, with grave consequences for our democracy. Yes, what accounts for this right now and for this widespread embrace of disinformation? Yeah. Um, wow, that's a wonderfully framed question. So in my book, I talk about the mind's resistance to disinformation, misinformation, and more generally bad ideas. And I call this property that minds have to one or another degree, mental immunity. And it's clear that a significant percentage of the American population has have mental immune systems that have been compromised uh, in various ways. And so there's a, a new science of mental immunity emerging as we speak, and it's shedding light on, on how propagandists, disinformation peddlers, demagogues, how they use uh, certain rhetorical strategies and, and the tools they have online to, to basically hack people's minds and manipulate them with misinformation. So uh, I actually think that we can, the, the science also offers, in addition to diagnoses, I think better diagnoses about what's wrong with our post-truth world. I think it also is offering us solutions in terms of strategies for preventing such spreads of disinformation in the future. 
So you you talk about um, infectious ideas, mind parasites. I wonder if we could take just one of the um, pieces of mythology that I'm talking about that Trump won the election and break it down for us and explain how it fits the criteria that you give for what constitutes an infectious idea or a mind parasite. Yeah. So infectiousness has to do with uh, an idea's transmissibility from one mind to another, and both good good ideas and bad ideas can can spread in a viral fashion. Um, so, so let me talk about bad ideas. So I, one of the more I don't know, audacious claims I make in the book is that all bad ideas are mind parasites. So uh, just as parasites require a host, bad ideas require a host just as uh, a parasite can uh, infiltrate a body and manipulate that body into creating copies of itself, a bad idea can infiltrate a mind and manipulate that mind into creating copies of it. And sometimes those copies spread to other people, other minds. So if you look at all of the criteria that biologists use to identify parasites, you find that bad ideas check all the boxes, so to speak. Now, now, if you take now that there's a deep philosophical question about what makes an idea good or what makes an idea bad. When and you say that the bad ideas check all the boxes, what are some of those boxes that it checks? Uh, requires a host, um, capable of infiltration. Um, uh, it's able to sort of hack a body's or a mind's capacity to to copying machinery, basically, um, and in some cases, induce behaviors that cause the host to spread the parasite to other, to other bodies or other minds. So these are the, these are the structural features needed of, of ideas that can spread at our expense. Or, I'm sorry, these are the structural features needed for a microbe to spread at our expense, and they're the exact same features that bad ideas have, especially when they do spread at our at our expense. You have talked about, um, you say that you're developing a vaccine against extremism. How yeah. do you do this? <laughs> so the first thing we need to do is understand how mental immune systems work and why they fail. So in the same way that immunologists, going back about 200 years, have been studying the body's immune system and figuring out how it works, why it fails, and how we can make it work better. In this exact same way, we can ask those same three questions of mental immune systems. And although the, the science on this is very young, uh, we can look forward to a day, I think. So, so the idea that um, we might, that we as a species might be free of smallpox would might have seemed laughable before the immunology revolution. But since then, we've developed, we've practically wiped out smallpox, and we've transformed human, the human condition. Immunology has had a tremendous effect on the human prospect. I think that the new science of cognitive immunology, the science of mental immunity, could be every bit as transformative of the human condition. Um, I foresee a day when our understanding of mental immune health 
allows us to educate children in a way that makes them dramatically less susceptible to disinformation and conspiracy thinking and divisive ideologies. Um, how, yeah. how so? How do you make somebody less susceptible? So one of the most powerful mind inoculants ever invented is the famed Socratic method. So Socrates was a Greek philosopher, one of my heroes, and he basically spent his whole life um, striking up conversations and testing ideas with questions. He was, he was just marvelously talented at this, and this led his pupil, Plato, to write a series of dialogues about him, and these dialogues have had a huge effect on our civilization. Um, I think that this Socratic method, we need to reinvest in understanding how this method works to make minds less susceptible to bad ideas. And in fact, we can actually use the science that's emerged in, over the last 60 years to enhance it and basically take this mind inoculate, inoculant, and turn it into something like a mind vaccine. How, keep going, how would that work? How would you vaccinate people? I mean, we are living in this moment where um, these have great currency. These uh, yeah. pieces of a vaccine could be very helpful. So how do you vaccinate an unsuspecting person from bad ideas? Yeah, well, I, I'm calling for the vaccination of the willing first. Uh, no, no, in fact, I'll, 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 I'll say I, I'm only calling for the vaccination of the willing, not, not the unwilling. But the kind of vaccination, mind of vaccination that I'm talking about is fundamentally instructional. It involves no needles. But you can teach people how to spot bad ideas by uh, teaching them, for example, to investigate the, the doubts and reservations. So when an idea, you come across an idea or information for the first time, a lot of times there'll be a little doubt in the back of your head saying, something's not right here. If you learn to listen to that doubt, you'll often discover that, it, that it's your mind's immune system which mobilizes those doubts, because doubts are actually the mind's ant the antibodies of the mind. If you learn to listen to the mind's antibodies, they'll often teach you something important about the, they'll often call your attention to the problematic features of, of dangerous or false or poorly evidenced ideas. So the whole game here is to kind of make people more sensitive to the problematic features of ideas so they don't buy into them and go down rabbit holes. So what's different about a person, one person who is immune to bad ideas, who can hear, you know, peace, you know, ideas, QAnon uh, ideas and, and laugh about them, how preposterous they are about cults and pedophiles and such. And another person who is very susceptible, who, takes it all in, whole hog. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that a big part of your immunity to bad ideas is the circles you move in. So if you move in circles of people who have, say, been trained in the scientific method or who've been trained in the Socratic method, a lot of times um, you won't be infected by bad ideas simply because the people around you aren't passing them on or transmitting them to you. So a big part of the, of the kind of immunity that many liberals pride themselves on is just good luck. They happen to have been born into 
they've been privileged enough to be born in communities that are relatively resistant to bad ideas. Um, and so many people fall prey to conspiracy theories or dangerous ideologies simply because the people around them are passing them on and they don't have enough resistance. So we need to rethink American education so that everyone can become uh, strongly immune to the most dangerous and dysfunctional and false and misleading and uh, manipulative ideas that are right now coursing through our, uh, over, over the internet and through our public spaces. What do you tell people who ask you how you tell good information from bad? And this is a, a real question that people have. You know, we see Fox News and Newsmax, you know, these sources that have been peddling in a lot of this misinformation. Well, they look and sound every bit the same as the next network, which may be fact-based, similar with websites that you may go to. So... Yeah. What's the practical thing you can share with people about how to navigate this terrain? Wow, that, that's a terrific question. Uh, so there are people who work on, say, media literacy and, and teaching the skills of you know, checking to see that the websites you're relying on uh, are well-credentialed, whether their sources are reliable, whether they have a good track record of passing on truths, or, or whether they are, in fact... You know, interested actors uh, trying to hack hack your mind, um, and I'm I'm no specialist in that kind of media literacy, but I think it's really important work, and and a good bit of the answer to your question can come out of a uh, you know examination of some best practices in teaching media literacy. <laughs> My own training is in philosophy, and philosophers have been testing ideas in conversation which is different from testing the ideas that you might bump, a, bump into on the internet and, there, and, and investigating by clicking on things, right? So I don't have any particular insights to share about how, which things to click on to check on your online resources. And of course, some of the disinformation sources out there have gotten, have done, have become extremely good at simulating being a reliable source. Right, um, I mean, some of the most dangerous microbes actually uh, pass as as uh, harmless. The body's immune system doesn't recognize things as harmful, and so they gain entry to the body, take over, and harm our health. And in just the same way, a very clever bit of disinformation or misinformation can can simulate. Can, can develop the appearance of being harmless so that it evades your mind's immune system and take up root in your mind. So the, the analogy here is very strong between the biological and the, and the cognitive. Um, yeah, jump in here. Well, um, you write that culture wars corrupt cultural immune systems. Yeah. Uh, give an example of that and explain what you mean. So when... When people become convinced that their fellow citizens are enemies, they divide into camps. We're a very tribal species. So there's a lot of research on how important tribalism was to our, the survival of our ancestors. So our minds actually have a, a tribal architecture 
that leads us to think in very tribal ways. Um, but when so when societies begin to uh, divide into factions, and the two factions start to vilify one another, one of the things that happens is that they each regard the other side's arguments and the other side's information as threats. But when you regard information as a threat, what happens is your, your mind goes into fight or flight mode and it fights back against the information rather than listen to it and actually learn from it. So to live together in America, say, we actually need to be able to have fruitful dialogue, good conversations. This is called the Vermont conversation, right? You understand the value of conversation. Um, you can't keep a nation together without having the kind of dialogues that bridge ideological divides. And if the parties on either side are on uh, high alert for subversive messages, they jump to conclusions about the falsity or the unreliability of the messages coming from the other side, and they start to denigrate them before they even listen to them or give them whatever partial credit they deserve, right? Do you think we're living at a moment where people are just more prone to this than we have been in the past? I mean, where these kind of conspiracy theories uh, are just taking root in a way that it seems like they wouldn't have in the past. Absolutely, right? So when, when psychologists first started to ex try to explain this craziness that's, that's been taking off in our post-truth world, initially, a lot of them just pointed to cognitive biases. But the cognitive biases that psychologists have documented in recent years are pretty much species universals. They've always been there and have been there for thousands and thousands of years. So if that was the full explanation, you'd expect craziness to have persisted throughout. But you and I are, are old enough to remember a far less crazy and less politically polarized time. So we know that susceptibility to dangerous ideologies can wax and wane over time. So there are variables as well as the psychological constants at work. Um, and the variables have to do with cultural conditions that either exacerbate our susceptibility or mitigate our susceptibility. And I think we live in a time right now and the internet is certainly a big part of the story that is exacerbating our susceptibility to bad ideas. Um, one of the stories I tell in my book, in the book, is that we've actually been neglecting and abusing, we've been abusing mental immune systems and neglecting our mental immune health for decades and decades. So one of the reasons that Donald Trump can rise to power and spread the big lie about the election theft is that we've bought into a lot of false truisms that disrupt our mind's own ability to weed out bad ideas. So uh, the book goes into a whole bunch of commonplace assumptions, each of which serves to diminish our, our resistance to dangerous ideas. And if we replace those, call them immune disruptive ideas, we gain, uh, we gain more immunity and can begin to climb out of the the rabbit hole we've collectively dug for ourselves. How do you talk to somebody 
who believes something that you know to be untrue? What works? That's hard, right? So um, I've just been working on this in the last few weeks. Um, I call this the, the cranky uncle problem. So a colleague of mine who works in cognitive immunology has created an app called the cranky uncle. And you get to try to uh, interact with your cranky uncle, conspiracy theorist uncle, um, by tapping on your smartphone. And if you do things that the science shows work to convince conspiracy theorists, the app congratulates you. And if you do things that just cause your cranky uncle to dig their heels in, <laughs> um, it tells you that too and tells you to try something else. So it's it's an app designed to kind of teach us how to have better conversations with the ideologically, uh, shall I say, addled um, members of our population. Um, my own contribution to this space um, is something I call the new Socratic method. So Socrates was absolutely marvelous at asking clarifying questions to help people see the defects in their own thinking. But he could be a kind of a, he, he could be a jerk. He, he loved using questions to kind of do gotcha moments that made people look foolish. And this, of course, won him enemies, and they eventually convicted him and made him drink hemlock, a poison. Give, to, us, give us an example of what you mean here, how he, of both the method and how he could be a jerk. Uh, let's see. So at his trial, Socrates conducted his own defense. And his accusers, uh, one of his accusers um, was accusing him of worshiping false gods and of being an atheist. Socrates quickly pointed out that there's a contradiction contained in those two accusations and embarrassed one of his accusers before a jury of about 500 peers. So and Socrates, even with his life on the line, couldn't resist that gotcha moment that made uh, um, an accuser look foolish. Well, Socrates didn't, he went on to actually propose. So after he was convicted, they moved to the punishment phase of his trial. And under Athenian law, the prosecution and the defense each get to present uh, a proposed sentence. And then the jury votes again between the two sentences. And so the prosecutor proposed death and Socrates in his own defense proposed that he be sentenced to free life's free meals for the rest of my life at the public expense because that so Socrates was not above uh, needling and um, uh, I mean, he, he basically said in his defense that he was God's gift, gift to Athens and that if Athens had any sense, they would reward him with free meals for life rather than sentence him to death. This didn't win him any friends, right? I, I believe this is known as hubris uh, <laughs> yes. or in simple terms, arrogance. Yes. Now, the thing is, Socrates' brilliantly insightful method of asking clarifying questions doesn't have to be accompanied by that hubris or that arrogance. Um, you can actually subtract out the arrogance, add humility and patience, and you get something I call the new Socratic method, which is less about producing gotcha moments and more about innate empowering people to let go of bad ideas so that they can grow beyond them. You can do this in a very supportive way that raises questions in a non-threatening way. Um, and there's some marvelous work being done out there 
with people experimenting with these techniques. You might have heard of street epistemology. Is this something you've come across? No. Um, so street epistemologists kind of do a gentle version, a, kind of, a kindler, gentler version of Socratic questioning. They just walk up to somebody on the street and say, hey, do you mind if we have a conversation and would it be okay if I filmed it? And then they just ask them very non-challenging questions about their core beliefs and get them to explore them a little bit. And a deft street epistemologist can get you to think really deeply about some of your core convictions without making you defensive at all. Um, and it's a very powerful technique for helping people climb out of their bunkers, so to speak, their ideological bunk bunkers, um, which is one of the reasons street epistemologists all over the world have flocked to the street epistemology Facebook page where they all post their, their videos of the conversations they're having with people. I think they're actually teaching us how to converse better about um, the things that matter most. Well, Andy Norman, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. It's been a pleasure, David. Thank you. Andy Norman directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University. His new book is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vtdigger.org slash Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.